Hi, I'm Sam Broadfoot QC. And I'm David Locke QC. And welcome to the fifth in our series of eight podcasts looking at the law relating to police pensions. As before, the discussions in these podcasts do not constitute legal advice. In the last podcast, we started to look at injury pensions, also known as injury on duty awards, which are made under the Police Injury Benefit Regulations 2006. We will refer to these regulations as the IB regulations. Listeners may remember that the entitlement conditions under Regulation 11 are 1. That the applicant had ceased to be a member of a police force. 2. He or she must be permanently disabled, and we discussed what permanent meant. 3. The officer's permanent disability must have been caused by an injury. And 4. The injury must have been received by the officer without his own default in the execution of his duties. And listeners may recall how the threshold for default is quite high and the difficulties of sometimes working out whether the injury occurred whilst the officer was acting in the execution of his duty. The question of whether a person is entitled to any, and if so, what awards under the IB regulations is determined in the first instance by the PPA, the Police Pensions Authority, who is the Chief Constable or, in the case of the Metropolitan Police, the Commissioner. But in practice, the key questions are referred to and answered by the SMP, the Selected Medical Practitioner, a doctor appointed by the Chief Constable. We explained some of the difficulties arising out of assessments made during an ill health retirement process and the extent to which findings made in that process were binding on the SMP when considering the question of whether the officer was permanently disabled. David, you set out in the last podcast the four questions that had to be referred to the SMP under Regulation 30. Would you just recap them here? Sure. There are four questions that have to be answered by the SMP under the IB regulations. First, whether the person is disabled, and that's the disablement question. Secondly, whether the disablement is likely to be permanent. We call that the permanence question. Thirdly, whether the disablement is the result of an injury received in the execution of duty. We call that the causation question. And then lastly, the degree of the person's disablement, and that's the degree of disablement question. As we said last time, if a police officer has not been through an earlier ill health retirement process, the SNP has to decide each of these questions sequentially. And a former police officer will only be entitled to an injury pension if the SMP answers the first three questions affirmatively. A negative answer, a no answer, to any of these three questions will not lead to an entitlement to an injury pension. The answer to the last question governs the level of the pension. Yes, so in this podcast we will concentrate on two matters. First, we will look at the concept of degree of disablement, and second, we will look at the series of problems around causation, and the difficulties that can arise where officers suffer from multiple conditions or a single injury which has multiple causes. We are taking these in reverse order from how they are set out in Regulation 30 because we think it's easier to explain them that way. First then, the degree of disablement. In the war pensions context, the degree of disablement means just what you think it might mean, i.e. the level of your disablement. This is assessed by making a comparison between the condition of the member who is now disabled and the condition of a normal healthy person of the same age and sex. 
and it specifically does not take into account the earnings capacity of the member in his disabled condition. However, the position is quite different in the IB regulations, isn't it? Yes, it's completely different here. The war pensions context uses degree of disablement in the right way, but in the police injury context, degree of disablement is more of an economic concept as opposed to a medical concept. Degree of disablement is a defined term in the IB regulations, it's defined in Regulation 7.5, and it means the degree to which a former officer's earning capacity has been affected as a result of the duty injury. Yes, the former officer's physical or psychological injuries are only the starting point in the police scheme because degree of disablement means the extent to which those injuries affect the ability of the former officer to earn a living outside the police service. So that is essentially a comparative exercise between the former officer's earning capacity prior to the injury and his present earning capacity. Yes, that's right. It's important that the proper comparison is made in order to work out a person's degree of disablement. And that's done by asking how much the individual's earning capacity, their ability to earn a living, has been affected by the duty injury. Right. And some of the case law in this area refers to a comparison between the uninjured earning capacity and the injured earning capacity of the former officer. Is there a clear agreement as to what is meant by the earning capacity of an individual? Well, it would be great if there was, but unfortunately there is some inconsistency in the cases about what precisely is meant by loss of earning capacity. But let's start at least by setting out what is clear. First, this is a wholly different idea to the concept of loss of earning capacity as it appears in standard personal injury cases. These are not what lawyers refer to as Smith and Manchester damages. Those arise in circumstances where an individual has managed to retain a job after an industrial accident and so suffers no immediate loss of earnings, but would suffer in the labour market if that individual had to try to find a new job at some point in the future. Here, by definition, the person entitled the pension is a former police officer and has therefore ceased to earn his living as a police officer. So the personal injury cases about loss of earning capacity deal with something that's completely different. Secondly, it's a calculation based on the current position, not a calculation which looks into the future and tries to work out what's going to happen to the officer at various times in the future. If there's a change in the earning capacity as a result of the duty injury at some point in the future, that can be reflected by a review decision but the calculation for degree of disablement is solely focused on the here and now. And thirdly, logic dictates that whatever approach should be taken to assessing an individual's injured earning capacity, the same approach must be taken when assessing the uninjured earning capacity. It can't be right to take a narrow view in respect of the uninjured earning capacity, but to take a different and much wider view when looking the injured earning capacity. But regrettably, that's not always how the case has worked out, either in the guidance or in the case law. Hmm, I can see the logic in that. But can you give me an example of a narrow or broad approach being taken to earning capacity so that we can understand that better? Sure. One simple example is the Home Office guidance, which suggests that the earning capacity of a police officer should be limited to the pensionable earnings of a police officer. 
but that means that substantial and regular overtime would be ignored, even if it formed a large part of the officer's real earnings, that is money going into his bank account month on month. And there's no explanation as to why the real earnings of the officer should be artificially reduced to his pensionable earnings. Surely the right approach to the assessment of earning capacity, injured or uninjured, is to ask what jobs a person with the individual officer's skills, qualifications and experience could undertake and how much a person could earn in total if appointed to that job. So one consideration might be whether, as a result of their injuries, they can only work part-time instead of full-time. And this approach also suggests that we could rule out jobs where there is a requirement for a specific qualification, but the individual does not have that qualification. So if a former police officer does not have a degree, for example, then jobs should be discarded in making the assessment if the entry qualification for that job is a degree. That's right, and that's a good starting point and how many SMPs approach the uh, assessment. But some assessment also has to be made as to whether there's any prospect of the individual actually being able to secure the job. Because some highly paid jobs, like being a footballer or television newsreader, for example, don't have any specific entry qualifications. But realistically, they're not really open to anybody who hasn't got a particular track record or talent in that area. Now, in the case of laws versus metropolitan police, law justice laws, no relation to, to the applicant in that case, said there had to be, quote, concrete prospects, close quote, of an individual earning a job before it could be taken into account. And I would suggest that that's an entirely sensible approach. Yes, listeners may remember the case of Belinda Laws that we discussed in podcast three. In that case, it was argued that Ms Laws's law degree, which she obtained after her injury, should have been left out of account in determining the injured earnings comparator. And Lord Justice Laws, no relation, stated that the impact was likely to be modest because, quotes, unless it had concrete results in terms of actual job prospects, and the degree is not, of course, a professional qualification, its effect on her earning capacity seems to me to be largely speculative. However, you did try and run that argument in a case called Fisher against Chief Constable of Northumbria, didn't you? But that wasn't accepted by the judge. In that case, Mr Fisher lived in Morpeth, Northumberland, and the Chief Constable's proposed comparator jobs were in the south of England. The judge rejected a complaint that this was an inappropriate comparative job, didn't he? That's right. One of many cases where I've not won on every issue, um, although the decision in that case didn't turn on, on that precise issue. And therefore, the judge's observations on that point don't have to be followed uh, in the future. Uh, I think his reasoning appears difficult to follow. And it's probably better to stick with the observation of the Court of Appeal judge who talked about concrete prospects of earning a living in that particular job. And that seems to me to be a more practical approach. Mm. I think the key to his reasoning is at the end of his paragraph 48, that when explaining the Lord Justice Laws' judgment, he stated, a degree is potentially relevant to earning capacity, but only if it widens the range of work an employee can perform. That is the concrete results to which Laws, Lord Justice, was referring. It does not mean, he went on, that because a claimant chooses to live in an area where there are no jobs of the sort for which he is suited, that he can claim his earning capacity is zero. 
close quotes. Now that clearly puts the issue in a particular way, but one can see that if the assessment is not, as has been determined in other cases, a labour market assessment, then this statement does fit with that. But saying that a labour market assessment is the wrong approach does not really help us much in working out what the right approach is. And so it does leave some questions open, it seems to me. Anyway, so this is another potentially tricky issue. To be fair, though, David, I did I know that you did win the case for Mr Fisher on other grounds. Anyway, this case does demonstrate, however, an issue that was troubling me when I first started looking at the law in this area. You said in Chapter 5 of the Guide, which accompanies this podcast, that the task for the SNP is to establish the degree to which earning capacity has been affected by the relevant injury by comparing two things. A. The earnings that the former officer could have earned in jobs for which he would have been suitable if he had not been injured on duty. And B the earnings that he could now achieve in jobs for which he is suitable, given the disablements caused by his duty injuries. Now, on the face of it, the first limb of this seems a bit odd. Can you explain why would the SNP not simply take the so-called uninjured earning capacity as being the job that the former officer was doing? If Officer X was earning, say, £30,000 a year as a police officer before injury, but could, in principle, have been earning twice that in another job for which he was qualified, why should the reduction in earnings be calculated from the higher job salary which he didn't have, even though, theoretically, he could have done? Now, that's a good question. And two initial points. First, the degree of disablement only fixes the percentages, not the amount of the pension. The value of the pension is fixed as a percentage of the average pensionable pay of the officer. So a high degree of disablement will not result in a pension which is higher than the police officer's earning. Secondly, as lawyers, we work to the wordings of the regulations. It could have been said that the degree of disablement was fixed by a comparison between his current earning capacity with his disabilities and his former police salary. But he didn't. So as judges said in a number of cases, the police salary is the starting point, but it may not tell the whole story depending on the individual circumstances. Okay. So let's start with the assessment of the uninjured earning capacity of the former officer. Tell us about your case which illustrates your point about it not being the whole story. Well, a few years ago I did a case about a police officer who'd qualified as a commercial airline pilot and he planned to leave the police and take up the job as a pilot. Now, unfortunately, that plan was scuppered when he was injured during his police service. And not only did he lose his career as a police officer, but he was also prevented from being able to work as a commercial airline pilot because of his uh, injuries. Now, in that case, his earning capacity prior to the injury was as a commercial airline pilot and not the lower earnings of a police officer. Equally, I did another case a few years ago about a police officer who faced disciplinary proceedings, which would almost certainly have resulted in his dismissal. And so he would have lost his police salary in any event. And in that case, his police salary wasn't an appropriate comparator, because even if he hadn't been injured, he wouldn't be earning a police salary. So the question is, what salary would the officer have earned outside the police, discounting any effect of his injuries? 
So in summary, the police salary will be the starting point for uninjured earning capacity, but there may be cases where a higher or lower earning capacity is appropriate. It all depends on the individual facts. Thinking out loud, I can see how this might be taken to extremes. For example, where police officers who leave police service to work in the personal security industry, both in the United Kingdom and abroad, sometimes results in situations where the former police officers can earn very considerable salaries, but there are substantial risks associated with this work, particularly in former war zones such as Iraq. Has anyone argued that a police officer's uninjured earning capacity should be the earnings of a personal security officer in Iraq, for example, given that this is a job which is, at least in theory, open to somebody after a police career? Well, that's an extremely good point. It's the type of creative thinking which is a long way away from the Home Office guidance, but logically I can't see a flaw in the argument. However, I'm not aware that arguments have been run in practice, so I can't tell you how the uh, the SNP or the PMAB would react to it. Back to the practicalities then. How in practice does the SNP work out the present earning capacity of a former police officer? Well, what tends to happen in practice is that the staff working for the force put forward various roles they consider are appropriate for the officer, given his injuries and his disablement, and given his qualifications and experience, then the former officer responds. And so if a job which is suggested requires the officer to have a degree, as you said a moment ago, um, it can be ruled out if the officer is not a graduate. And in practice, the task of the SMP is to make a realistic assessment of the type of job the former officer could now hold down, consistent with his injuries. And very often this means the SMP considers the former officer could, say, work 20 hours per week in an office-based role. Thus, his earning capacity will only be half that of somebody who can work full-time. Right. Can we next talk about causation and the tricky issue of multiple causes of a person's disablement? In your chapter, you have identified three different categories of cases, all of which have caused difficulties. First, we consider the case where an officer can become permanently disabled as a result of multiple medical conditions, some of which may be duty-related and others may be wholly unrelated to police service. So a police officer may have a mental health problem which is not related to his police service, but has a back injury which arose when he attempted to restrain a prisoner. What is the proper approach in a case involving multiple injuries? Well, sadly, there are quite a lot of cases about officers with multiple injuries, and there are two different ways in which causation can be relevant for police pensions. First, causation could be relevant to whether an officer is awarded an injury pension in the first place. Now, as long as the duty injury makes a substantial contribution to the overall disablement suffered by the officer, which probably means more than a marginal contribution, the fact there may be other non-duty causes which also contribute to his overall disablement will not prevent the officer being entitled to an injury pension. However, when it comes to working out the degree of disablement, the SMP has to work out the degree to which the duty injury has reduced his earning capacity. And if his earning capacity has been reduced as a combination of duty and non-duty factors, separate injuries, the SMP has to or portion any reduction in earning capacity between the duty and the non-duty factors. So if 50% of the reduction in his earning capacity is due to his back injury, 
which is a duty injury, and 50% is due to a mental health condition, which is not a duty injury, there'll be a 50% reduction in the degree of disablement because only half of the overall reduction in his earning capacity is as a result of the duty injury. Well, that makes sense and sounds reasonably straightforward when set out like that. So what happens if the former officer suffers from a single injury, such as depression, which has multiple causes, and only some of those causes are duty-related? Does that lead to apportionment too? Um, No. The duty injury may be the straw that breaks the camel's back. But nonetheless, the whole of the single injury is caused by that final straw. As long as the duty injury or duty incident or whatever it was that gave rise to that contribution towards the disablement is a substantial cause, that is, it makes more than a marginal contribution to the overall disablement, where there is a single injury with multiple causes, there should be no apportionment. The third category you discuss in the guide is where the officer has an underlying weakness or degenerative condition, which may or may not have yet given rise to symptoms, which is then aggravated by a duty incident. Can you set out what happens there? Well, I can explain that by illustrating the case of Mr. Walther, um, particularly as his case came to the High Court twice before he managed to establish his right to a pension. PC Walther had an undiagnosed degenerative back condition, which eventually would or or might have produced symptoms which may, probably would, have resulted in him having to retire as a police officer at some undefined date in the future. But the natural course of that condition, of which he was wholly unaware at the time, was accelerated when another officer jumped on his back during a training session. That caused him substantial back pain and effectively brought forward his back condition by at least a number of years and he was subsequently required to retire. But then the question arose, what caused his back injury? Was it the underlying condition, or was it the duty injury, or was it a combination of both? Now, the outcome of those two cases was that as long as the duty injury was a substantial cause of his disablement, at that time, he was entitled to an injury pension. After all, If it was not for the duty incident when the officer jumped on his back during the training session, he would have been able to continue as a police officer for a number of future years, carry on earning a salary, carry on contributing and ending up with a higher police pension. However, if a time came in the future when a doctor decided that his degenerative condition would have left him with exactly the same degree of disablement, he may get to a stage where he's not suffering from an injury with multiple causes but in fact has an injury with a single cause, namely the underlying degenerative condition. And if that's the position, there'll be a review and it could lead to his injury pension being reduced to band one. Now, all this shows that the injury pension is likely to reduce over time because as a person ages, it's inevitable that for some people, other conditions will emerge which are not related to police service and which would have affected the individual's earning capacity in any event. And thus, those factors affect the degree of disablement. This can be a serious worry for former police officers, because the injury pension stands to be reduced if they develop a wholly unrelated serious medical condition, 
which would have affected their ability to earn a living in any event. Yes, I can see how this can be a concern for police officers. I suppose what would be said by way of explanation or response is that the injury pension exists to make up for the income that the officer would have earned had he not suffered a duty injury. And so it would follow that the pension to be paid would fall to be reduced once those earnings would not have been received by the former officer in any event due to other factors. Finally, and very briefly, let us examine how much is paid to an officer who is eligible for an injury pension. How much is paid depends on the degree of disablement. The SNP makes a comparison between the injured and the uninjured earning capacity and expresses it as a percentage. And the officer gets a gratuity at a pension which is based on the table in Schedule 3 of the IV regulations. So, as I understand it, the actual pension is a minimum income guarantee expressed as a percentage of the former officer's average pensionable pay. Yes, that's right. And the percentage depends on a combination of the number of years that the officer has served with four categories. That's less than five years, between five and 15 years, 15 and 25 years or more than 25 years. And one of four bands, namely slight disablement, that's 25% or less degree of disablement, minor disablement, band two, being between 25 and 50%, major disablement, band three, between 50 and 75%, and severe disablement, being a figure for the degree of disablement of more than 75%. And the gratuity is a one-off payment, which is also dependent on the band and is related to the former officer's annual average pensionable pay. Yes, with the percentage figure set out in the same table in Schedule 3. Is the injury pension taxed? The injury pension is paid tax-free, but the value of the minimum income guarantee is reduced by 75% of the value of any other police pension which is paid to the individual. So the minimum income guarantee is cut by three quarters of the value of, for example, an ill health pension which is paid to the officer. There are also some fairly complex provisions relating to some but not all welfare benefits which fall to be deducted, but we're not going to try and describe them in detail in this podcast. Great. So that's it for our fifth podcast. Once again, can we say thank you very much to our producer, Amy Jansen. In podcast six, we will wrap up the description of police injury pensions, and we will go on to look at the provisions which allow pensions to be taken away from officers. And then finally, we will finish the series with a look at reviews of police pensions, including reviews of injury pensions. So many thanks for listening, and we hope to be able to release the next podcast in a week or so. Finally, reminder that this podcast and previous episodes are available on the Landmark Chambers website, along with the relevant chapters of the written guide on www.landmarkchambers.co.uk. See you next time.